Hello and welcome to GIST Radio. We are a casual radio station where we broadcast when we have something to say. GIST stands for Getting the Shit Together, and we broadcast important interviews and information for artists and creatives of all kinds. For more information on GIST, please log into our website at www.gyst-ink.com, where you will find free resources, software, and publications for artists. You can email us and let us know what you would like to hear about at info at gyst-ink.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in today with me, your host, Cara Tomei, for a conversation about yarn bombing a form of guerrilla street art that originated in Los Angeles and has truly gone global, with collaborative groups formed all over the country and even overseas. If you Google the term yarn bombing, you will see a myriad of images of this form of urban public art, with knitting covering park benches, parking meters, tree trunks, public sculptures and monuments, cars, an airplane, or one of the most ambitious interventions into the public sphere, the yarn bombing of an entire facade of a building. That project is by Yarn Bombing Los Angeles and is currently up at the Craft and Folk Art Museum on Museum Row, Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. Uh, My guest today is Arzu Arda Kosar, the founder of YBLA, Yarn Bombing Los Angeles. Hello, Arzu. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm very excited to talk to you about uh, what has been going on in Yarn Bombing Los Angeles. You have definitely taken on one of the more ambitious projects lately, but you have so many interesting projects to talk about. And I want to just talk first about um, Yarn Bombing itself, you know, this, this art form which has kind of really taken off. It's in terms of groups doing it everywhere, and I know you have been engaged in the art form for a few years. Tell me, how did you get interested in uh, knitting in the public sphere? Um, I actually was very much attracted to different forms and formats of street art due to some other projects that I've been involved with, which had to do with um, psychogeography and how people relate to the geography that they live in, how it affects who they are and how the urban um, environments are affected by who lives there. So I was already investigating that and the street art that flourishes um, in urban spaces. And um, a friend of mine that I had met actually at a just um, class was organizing a yarn bombing um, event around her studio in Highland Park. Um, she um, actually, Arroyo Arts Collective, that's um, pretty much um, active in um, Highland Park, Mount Washington, um, that's um, Northeast LA um, part of Los Angeles. They were organizing it around Amy Inouye's um, studio, Future Studio, that has a huge big chicken um, boy on it. And I thought that was a, a wonderful idea, so I joined them as a participant. That's great. Let's pause there, and I just want to go back to the fact that you took a uh, GIST professional practices workshop series. It's great to talk to somebody who has gone through the process of one of those. I'll just you know, tell our listeners that 
our founder, uh, just founder Karen Atkinson, is an expert in the field of helping artists get their shit together. She is behind this whole uh, business and uh, and the website and the podcast, and she has written the manual on professional practices. And she gives workshops a few times a year throughout Los Angeles, um, a series of 12 workshops and each uh, each one focuses on an important aspect of getting your career on track. And so you took one of those classes. Tell me a little bit about just the experience of being an artist who took the step of, of taking a class and you did you what you got out of it. Well, I took the class around, I don't want to lie, but I think it was around 2007 or 8, around that time. And that was a time when if you didn't have a website, you kind of weren't a serious artist. Um, like that whole general um, understanding of web presence was starting to sink in, with me at least. So I didn't have a website, and I didn't know how to design my website. Um, therefore, I thought taking a class on how to put your website together was a brilliant idea. So um, I actually designed a website for myself um, as a result of taking that class. But at the same time, I think it probably had to do with the formation of Yarn Bombing Los Angeles, the fact that I learned how to design a website because that ended up becoming a wonderful um, outreach source for me so that I was able to connect with so many different people from so many different places. That's right, because yarn bobbing really is, it's both, you could do it as an individual practice, of course, as you mentioned, you started to do projects on your own, but it is really also about collaboration. And especially it is very when you much take about on, collaboration, yes. Oh, yeah, especially when you take on large projects like covering, you know, a fleet of cars or covering a, the, <laughs> the facade of a museum. So let's talk about one of those projects before we get to um, your, your current one on, at CAFAM. I do want to just talk about a couple of other projects that you did. There are some great uh, images on your website, and I urge our listeners to go on your website at yarnbombinglosangeles.com and look at all the fabulous pictures of all the interventions and projects you've done. It's a wonderful website, by the way, very well laid out with lots of information on all of the projects you've done. And I see that it's definitely not only about the end product of this fabulous thing, that it's an intervention of color and into the into the public sphere, but it is definitely about the process of bringing people together and you really engage with the community and different segments of the community in different ways. I see things that you've done with youth. I see things you've done with older people. I see things that you've done with a collaborative of all different, the spectrum of, of the community, which is very exciting. Uh, for instance, let's just take one of your projects and, and I'll ask you about how do you go about doing one of these larger scale projects. For instance, I see that you have done various collaborations at places all around Los Angeles, like CAFAM, where you meet monthly, the 18th Street Art Complex, Angels Gate Cultural Center, and last summer there was a project at the Museum of Contemporary Art in downtown Los Angeles. In the parking lot of the Geffen, there were a fleet of cars covered by yarn, turning them into these sculptural objects in front of the museum. How did that project come about? And I'd like to just hear about the process of it. Well, that project actually was part of our uh, monthly meetings. I guess um, there was a lot of excitement by the fact that we knew that um, MOCA was organizing. This is back in 2011. Um, then we were in the process of putting together Yarn Bombing 18th Street. Um, 
we were meeting monthly. We weren't yet the Our Mom in Los Angeles then. We were just working for that um, one project that was supposed to happen at the 18th Street Arts um, Center. Back, This is back in June 18th, um, 2011 was the target day. But we had started um, meeting on a monthly basis back in the um, back like January of 2011, and people were coming together in monthly meetings and they were showing each other um, their work in progress and they were just chatting and there was a lot of excitement about the upcoming Art in the Street show, and somebody said, "Well, I wonder if it's going to represent um, any samples of yarn bombing or if it's just going to be." maybe just spray paint um, graffiti. Um, and um, lo and behold, it was, yeah, it did not have any yarn bombing or any other fiber arts um, that are being presented in urban environments. And we kind of thought that, well, they would like to maybe expand um, the definition of um, art in the streets because that seems like such a broad c- category, like art in the streets. Um, so therefore, um, we thought, well, there's also yarn bombing in the streets too. So we, um, what we did was we took the first row of the parking lot that's adjacent to Geffen, and um, we parked our cars there. There were about 13 cars, and we yarn-bombed our own cars. And um, that was also a spectacle for the people who were waiting to get in the Art in the show, um, Street show to be able to you know, look at something, because that ended up becoming such a popular museum exhibition that there were, toward the end of it, there were lines that were snaking around for people to um, get in. They had to wait in line sometimes for hours. So therefore, they had at least something to look at while they were waiting in line. And um, we seemed to have gotten a very positive response because some people were actually coming over and touching it. There was a um, card that looked like it was um, a piece of grass, there was another one that looked like a cloud, and there were um, sounds of um, clouds and rain coming from inside the car. There was another one that looked like a tuna, a huge big tuna, and then um, there was um, another card that um, showed a suburban mom trying to dry while trying to, um, you know, calm her um, fighting kids in the back seat. so that um, little vignette was in the windshield. So um, there were all these different cars that were parked um, in the in the parking lot, and that was our urban intervention, I guess, to the show to expand the definition of art in the streets. That is fantastic. Did you get permission, or did you do it guerrilla style? We actually have worked with um, the um, the the education department there. We kind of let them know doing that. And um, they did. Um, they were. They knew about it, and they um, did welcome it. The um, Andrea Yang, who had also um, done that magnificent series at MoCA about um, socially engaged art, she um, she knew about the project. Yes, that we were going to well, do. Well, that's it. great. That's. I mean, they should have embraced it. I'm glad they did because, like you said, what a wonderful way to expand the the idea of street art because it was definitely focused more on things on the wall, and and this is a form of street art. And in fact, you it, it's referred to as as a kind of temporary graffiti, even though instead of paint you're using yarn, but it is basically color and uh, taking over an object 
in in the in the public. I mean, I living in Los Angeles, I have come upon things that have been covered, and it's such a delight. You know, when you're walking along or driving along, and you just look out, and there's this parking meter that has a sweater on it, and it's just such a wonderful way of like you said, interrupting the daily flow and injecting art into a moment in the streets that is just so friendly and fun and funny. I mean, it makes you kind of laugh and and feel good (laughs) about living in a city. And I do wonder about what happens, what happens to it? I mean, like with graffiti, you know, it's painted over. With yarn bombing, what, what has been your experience of 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 it living in the street and how long and do is it cut down by someone is it you know what I mean what is the 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 death of it let's say it really depends um for instance while we were installing the craft and folk art facade installation um one of the participants um out of her own initiative she um covered some of the um handles on the bus um stop um, the handles on the bench that was at inside the bus stop across the street from the Craft and Folk Art Museum, and I think that was removed by the end of the day. But then there are many other um, installations where they just stay out as long as um, we leave them out. Um, for instance, there um, we also do these series of hugging trees um, where um, we cast live cast um, a person's arms and torso, and usually we try to find a tree that matches the size of the torso. So um, you then cover it with yarn, and then you install it onto a tree so that it looks like the tree is extending its arms to give you a hug. And so it's a play on the um, you know tree-hugging people, and this is the hugging tree. Some of those installations, when we put them out, and we, first of all, they do get a lot of interaction. People do hug them, and then they start sagging, and the arms are no longer reaching up. They're, like, kind of starting to droop down. So when we go to remove them before they become a public nuisance and they start looking old and a little raggy maybe, um, we've had instances where people came out and were like, no, you can't vandalize it, and it's so funny. They think that we're vandalizing the work. That's out right. there, and then we have to kind of explain to them that no, 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 this is our work. We like I'm I'm the author of this, so to speak. So uh, I just wanted to remove it before it became a public nuisance, and you kind of have to convince them to let you remove it. And this also happened to um, another um, piece that we had put out. It was a cover for a um, it was a light pole, but it was a quite colorful. Um, Quite a, I mean, it was a spectacle to look at, and I think um, my friend Darlene, she was trying to um, remove it again with the same purpose before it got raggy, and somebody pulled over and um, tried to you know question what she was doing, and she was like, I am trying to retrieve my work before it you know starts looking dirty, and she also had to talk that um, person, you know, into letting her remove her own artwork. So um, right. I am That's guessing that. Though. Yeah, people are appreciating. Not everybody, I assume, appreciates it, but many people do. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm not sure how one couldn't, to be honest. So <laughs> I would love to get into a conversation about the CAFAM, the Craft and Folk Art Museum. That's our little acronym there, CAFAM Project, because what a massive undertaking, not only physically because of the size of the building, well, and then the participation that you had. I How exciting. You had so many participants from really all over the world. So talk about that project from its inception and then into who and uh, how many people participated and how 
you know, the, your excitement about involving 500 individuals to send you 15,000 pieces of the five-inch granny squares to cover this giant building. Tell me, uh, so, so let's talk about this project. I would say that it actually started as a joke. And even we are um, surprised that we really made it happen because um, we were sitting across the um, museum one day because we do meet there on a monthly basis. So we were just waiting for each other. I think we were maybe going to Starbucks there, or it was just this very benign get-together. We're waiting for each other um, across from the museum, and we were just looking at the museum, and we were talking about the architecture of it, how it almost looked like um, the house of um, Hansel and Gretel from the Anderson stories, and how it almost looked like a storybook cottage. And it didn't really say Los Angeles, a metropolitan city, downtown, um, the 21st century at all. It seemed mm -hmm. to um, be really like living in its own time and place, so to speak, not in the metropolitan um, city center. And um, and then we were talking about how um, there were these wide expansions elsewhere on the block and how compared to that it was almost like a dollhouse. And um, and then how fitting it is in a weird way that it is the Craft and Folk Art Museum because it looks very crafty and folksy. And then um, we started kind of joking around that, oh, what if you made it even more so? What if you threw this on it? What if you threw that on it? And someone said, oh, we should yarn bomb it. And somebody else said, oh, you know what? We should put granny squares on it. And um, so we're just like at this point, um, we're, we're just joking around. And then uh, somebody else yeah, I you're guess joking, it ended up You're joking became brainstorming. brainstorming, which then became, oh, my gosh, we can really do this. Right. Um, yeah. And somebody else took that idea of Granny Square seriously, and they're like, it has to be big. If they were big, then if we played with scale, then it'll look even smaller. And when you look at it, so we always thought that it should be looked um, from across the street. And if, you, and if you were to look at it from across the street in the cityscape, it should look like it's this um, – unreal thing that's just been inserted in like in photographs it should almost look photoshopped um so that was our goal from the beginning well it works it works because it is the, the, the bright colors and the way you did it it truly does look like all of those things you're saying and i i urge people to go on your website yarnbombinglosangeles.com and look at the images of the building you've also gotten great press for it i've seen it on various uh sites like Cool Hunting, and actually you got a great write-up in the Los Angeles Times this weekend. Uh, the, the reviewer said, think of it as representing the artistic marriage of the Albers, the Bauhaus artists, the, Annie, Annie and Joseph Albers. And then she says, the Bauhaus never looked quite like this, though, which is part of the wonderful work's goofy charm. That was a, a great write-up for you. I actually so, was shocked by that because we... We were kidding about Oliver's as we were coming up with the design. So, oh, that's great. Well, there's so your I mean, it was great that so it was clear. picked up, <laughs> even though that's we never great. said it in any of our press. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That must have been uh, that she got this, this writer got it right on the money then. He so did, I yes. I want to hear, so so you're, basically you were saying you were using the term we about the brainstorming about the project, and so that's your core members. Can you tell me who your core members are by name? It would be nice to give them a little uh, recognition as well. 
Of course. Um, our core members, I must also add that they do change on a pro um, like on a, a yearly basis, on a project basis. But for this particular project, the people who really took leadership roles and made it happen, they were Carol Zhu. She was also she's the one who's now designing our website and all of our graphics, and she's amazing. David Orozco, um, Darlin, Susan Yee, and um, definitely Judy Richard. She was a huge part of it. And um, we also had an extended um, network of collaborators that were just very, very um, important parts of this. And extended work will include names like Heather Hogan. She got us the um, structural engineer, for instance. Without him, this wouldn't have happened. Um, Connie Rahman, um, without her helping us out, you know, getting her community involved, the fundraising wouldn't have happened. Um, Caitlin um, Doro uh, would be part of it. Amy, um, you know, it would definitely be part of that extended network. And um, there are many, many others that um, I, I, mean, I would have to take the whole day to list them all. Right, sure. I mean, you get 500 individuals who ended up bidding <laughs> for the project, so that would take too long. But I'm glad you, you know, gave those uh, other people by name some some props because you really called a lot of people. And so, I, how did you get these individuals to participate? And how did you get some people from even across the globe to get involved? I think it's the power of social media, to be perfectly honest. Um, once you put it out there. Um, anyone who's interested in it, anyone who might be looking for a, such an opportunity, um, they seem to be able to um, take it and run with it. I don't think this project would have happened 10 years ago. Um, so it's definitely the social media. It's definitely um, Internet. Right. So you, did you have random people from, uh, in other words, in a way, random people finding the call? Did you send out a call? Did you, you know, How did you publicize it to get people from different countries involved? And I'd like to actually hear specifics about, you know, who in different countries ended up being involved. Um, well, well, the way it worked was um, we had um, put it out um, on our Facebook page, and I think we had put it out on our website. And then... Um, Lisa Boone, who used to write, I think, the calendar section of the um, LA Times, but then she now writes for Home. She picked up on it, and then she wrote a, um, a like a little entry on the LA Times blog, and that kind of got the word out beyond our network. And then um, we then um, started posting it in every blog, every relevant blog that we can think of, and we started sending it out to all the. Um, like any place and every place that we can think of, to be perfectly honest, just emailing it out or posting it on their blog was how we got the word out. But it was, um, I think, around that same time when we started with this project, I think our Facebook page had people, like I had maybe 200 people who liked it. I think, I didn't look at our numbers lately, but I think it's like over 1,500 now. So all of a sudden, um, it was funny that we started getting so many likes on our page um, I think one person uh, who might be participating in this probably posted it on their Facebook page, and then that person was able to then reach out to their network, and then they found out about the project through our Facebook page, and then they started liking it and participating, and it just snowballed from there. Um, Ravelry was another website. Um, that is the Facebook for crafters, I guess. 
um, that became an instrument in reaching out to um, a more specific craft-oriented or art-oriented um, international network of um, collaborators who are already collaborating on various projects. A lot of them are probably doing things like um, knitting cancer caps and um, things like that. And they also started getting on board. And I think the Ravelry crowd was also interested in the fact that once we got so many squares, we said we're going to send the extra squares to the homeless. And then we um, were able to work with the Downtown Women's Center to help um, their organization. I think more people jumped on board, even after they knew that we had enough number of squares to be able to cover the building. So that became another um, I think, dimension of the project. And some of the participants, the international participants, for instance, the ones from Iran, I think came about um, because this lady um, who I was chatting with through Ravelry, she was from Iran, she said something to the effect that I would love to participate in this project, but um, there is no mail service between here and there. Apparently, I didn't wow. know this. There wasn't any mail service between um, Iran and the United States. And then I just um, wrote this on our Facebook page. We said, oh, this is kind of sad. We didn't realize that this was the case. And then someone, I think, who lives in L.A., but who knew someone in um, Iran, read this and then sent it to her friends. And then her friends were like, oh, my God, we have to be represented. And then I believe like an apartment building, um, neighbors got together and they crocheted, um, I think there were 10 people who crocheted 13 squares. And then they knew someone, they were in Shiraz, they knew someone who lived in Tehran who was going to be coming to the United States. So they sent it to that person in Tehran who then brought it to the United States, who then gave it to the person um, that was in L.A., who then gave it to us. So, that um, is incredible. I think so. That is, <laughs> yes, that is really incredible. I, wow, that is really incredible. <laughs> the story is fantastic. Wow. That is that's, that just must be so satisfying because you know you're doing something that people just are really want to be engaged in. And, I, you know, who knew that there are so many people around the world who knit and crochet still. I mean, you know, it is associated with an older art form, but it is so renewed now. I mean, there are groups all over L.A. that you can go and learn how to crochet. You can, you know, learn the the, the crafting aspect of it, and, and it's just, it's amazing. In fact, you, do you all give workshops, or the, the monthly meetings are your way of getting people, you know, together and get projects going, et cetera. I do know that you're going to do some workshops related to the Craft and Folk Art Museum, correct? Um, yeah. I mean, the meetings that we have at the Craft and Folk Art Museum, it's basically almost like an open studio kind of a thing where you can just come in and you can show your work in progress and you can chat and network with like-minded people kind of a thing. But if you sit next to someone who's willing to show you how to knit and crochet. That might happen, too, even though it is not organized as a workshop at all. But um, as part of the Makers Fair, we had given workshops to LAUSD students and their teachers and parents um, on um, yarn bombing. And um, David, for instance, had um, done some workshops in um, some area schools that were requesting that we teach their students how to knit and crochet. Um, so he's done that. And um, I think Caitlin and Judy recently did a workshop um, in Santa Monica that um, we got a request from the city of Santa Monica if we would participate in their um, workshop, and we did that too. 
So sometimes we do um, have workshops, but the meetings, the monthly meetings are not um, like craft teaching workshops by any means. It's mostly a place to network. I see. So anyone in Los Angeles who does knit and crochet and might want to get involved in a project can come to the monthly meeting. It's an open forum. It's an open forum, and you'll probably meet um, like-minded people. And it's surprising how many um, crazy ideas um, come up, and some of them actually do get followed up upon. (laughs) That's right. That's incredible. Let me talk to you about what's going to happen at the end of the project because it is uh, the the Craft and Folk Art Museum is currently covered, and it will be up through. Uh, tell me the date that it that it stays up through the through. Um, it is right now. Um, we have permits to um, leave it up till July first, and because of the reaction that they've been getting, and so many people haven't actually asking the Craft and Folk Art Museum, I think to keep it up permanently. <laughs> Um, they oh, wanted wow. to extend <laughs> I don't know how that happens. Like, do you dip it in resin? I have no idea. But they were wondering if we could keep it up till the end of the summer. But so far, we have been unable to um, reach the um, public and safety department that gave us the permit. So that's up in the air currently. But um, what we are planning to do... Um, oh, can I? I'm sorry. Just let me, let me interject for a second. I think our listeners would find this little piece of information interesting. So you actually had to go through the city to permit this artwork you're yes. saying. Yes, that so was actually that, was, a, an art project in and of itself. That whole getting the permit. Right, because most of the projects are guerrilla style, where you just do it and and you know see what happens. But this is more of a absolutely an official project. You had to get permission from the museum, of course, but additionally the city of LA had to approve it. What what kind of permit is it called? This is just interesting. Um, there is no such permit. That's why it was so hard to pull it off. Originally, we huh? thought that we were going to do this guerrilla style when it was just us who were um, developing the idea, were like, oh, yeah, we'll just um, do the thing ourselves and then um, we'll just slap it on the building. And if it just stays up, we were just thinking about taking the picture and then just letting it, because we're really interested in having almost like an image of it. If it stayed up longer, it would be icing on the cake. If it didn't stay up longer, we just wanted to see what it looked like. So original idea was to do it gorilla style and see how long it stays up, because there's enough protrusions and hooks and things that remain from previous, um, things that were installed on the museum facade that we, we thought that we could just, you know, hang it from those. And right. once we got the number of participation that we got, it became very clear to us and also people going out of their way to be able to be a participant in this. We realized that we can't just casually slap it on and see how long it stays. There needs to be, like, we we, we almost became accountable for a much larger project than what we originally um, envisioned. So therefore, I mean, not it, the project, the visuals of it didn't change, but the scope of participation changed. So therefore, feeling accountable to all the participants, we thought that, okay, now maybe um, we need to make sure that it stays up longer than a couple hours. So um, then we started the whole process of figuring out what it needs to get a permit. To get a permit, you need to work with a contractor who has a um, uh, like insurance and bonded and all of that, and you need to have a structural engineer involved. And to get all of these involved, you have to have a lot of money. Then we had to do fundraising. Then we had to go through the whole process of that. And also dealing with the um, public safety departments, um, 
it wasn't very easy for anyone because they i don't i think from the very beginning they were friendly to us they wanted to work with us they thought it was an amusing project it was just that there was no such thing um right so they like they were trying to figure out is this um because there is advertisements people put up banners for advertisements but this is not advertisement i mean what is it advertising other than a community coming together and it's on a nonprofit um building so um and then there was also like who owns the building who like they're thinking about ownership like so you have to like find the owner of the building to do the application but it's a nonprofit building and it's a nonprofit entity and we're a non we're not even a nonprofit group we're just a bunch of artists who work together so um yeah so we worked on getting the um the permits um officially and we had to convince a lot of people and a lot of people had to um see where they could fit it between the existing you know book of rules that they have and um in the end we got a temporary permit that was valid for um a period of 6 weeks and um yeah i'm trying to figure out how to extend that and people are like how did you get the permit to begin with so um they're now questioning that <laughs> cuz it was great exist. though because i mean it's it's amazing how many tendrils this project ended up, you know, involving people. Because in a way, what you did is the city found a way to expand their notion of what is allowable, you know, in the public sphere and and permittable. And they they found a way to do it, and in the process learned about this creative project and such a creative way of kind of altering the urban landscape and it should be supported and official. So your project also kind of taught those people some lessons or, you know, they, they got involved in a way they probably uh, wouldn't have expected. So that's another layer of, of where this project went. It's, it's got a lot Absolutely. of great layers. Because a lot of people do say, oh, it's not gorilla, you had to get permits for it. But then again, it's not civic art. It doesn't fit into the pre-existing notions of civic art either. So therefore, even though we have to go through this um, very delicate balance of, you know, trying to get permits for it or making sure that it is safe, at least, from a public safety um, standpoint view, um, nevertheless, um, it is way outside the scope of um, civic art, which is usually some abstract sculpture. A lot of times it's an abstract sculpture outside of a corporate headquarters or a bronze sculpture in the park usually are the pre-existing notions of civic art, and this is not that either. So, um, yeah, it's in this in-between space, and what we really want to do is to question um, what goes for public art and what is public art. I think urban interventions definitely are public art. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I think what what you have all accomplished is really uh, a a giant feat of art and concept and community building and just engaging all of these aspects and elements. Uh, It's it's truly remarkable that it started from just a casual conversation and and ended in such a wonderful grand scale. So congratulations to Yarn Bombing Los Angeles for pulling this off. And it's not even over yet. We're still doing this um, other phase of the project with the Downtown Women's Center where we're going to be um, turning the extra um, squares into blankets for the um, residents of the Downtown Women's Center. And we're also going to be actually teaching workshops there so they can um, – we're going to be um, designing a product for them to sell at their um, store made where women make and sell things. 
at the store, and then they keep all the um, proceeds from it. So we will also be working with um, designing products uh, for them and then um, teach them how to make that product and then turn it over to them so that they can keep producing it and hopefully um, have an income from selling it at their store made in Skid Row. Well, that's that's another wonderful uh, another wonderful layer. You're basically it turns into a social project. You know, it's an art project that has all the aesthetics of art, and it's also a social project that is reaching people in so many different ways. It is uh, it's truly a feat, and so I definitely admire we all I think all of our listeners and the people who get to see it uh, either in person if you're in Los Angeles, make sure to get down to the Crafted Folk Art Museum on Museum Row to see this amazing thing in 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 situ and if not uh you're going to log on to the website yarn bombing los angeles and see not only CAFAM but all the wonderful projects and if you are a crafter or a knitter i think you should get involved with this movement because it is truly a movement all over the united states and the world like i said it started with saying just google google the term and it is just amazing the images that come up all over the place Arzu, I thank you for being my guest today, and all of your, all of my listeners, thank you for listening. Also, be sure to log on to gist-inc.com with the K, that's G-Y-S-T-I-N-K.com for more radio shows, get on our mailing list. Uh, Arzu started with a workshop with Gist, and if you're an artist who wants to further their career in any way, Gist has something for you. Thank you for listening today, and join me next week. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm a helpful Southern California Honda person, and recently we've been doing random acts of helpfulness, like sending a kid to basketball camp and helping a family with gas for their son's frequent hospital visits. And during the Honda Summerbration sales event, we can help you with a great deal, because right now we're clearing out the 2017s, like the Accord, a 2017 car and driver 10 best a record 31 times. Click the dealer locator link to find a dealer near you and go to SoCalHondaDealers.com to suggest a random act of helpfulness for someone you know. Car and driver January 2017. Hi, I'm a helpful Southern California Honda person, and recently we've been doing random acts of helpfulness like sending a kid to basketball camp and helping a family with gas for their son's frequent hospital visits. And during the Honda Summerbration sales event, we can help you with a great deal. Because right now, we're clearing out the 2017s, like the Accord, a 2017 car and driver 10 best a record 31 times. Click the dealer locator link to find a dealer near you and go to SoCalHondaDealers.com to suggest a random act of helpfulness for someone you know. Car and driver January 2017.